0: His was a life defined by acts of faith that would change the course of history. Join us as Pastor Chris Chadwick preaches from the Bible on Abraham and the difficult journey of faith. Take your Bibles tonight, turn to Genesis chapter 21 and Genesis chapter 21 verses 8 to 21. Genesis 21 verses 8 to 21 will be our text. As we come to this passage of scripture, sometimes in the Bible, if we're not careful, we see things happen, and when they happen, um, we will assume that uh, because God brought good out of it, that it was part of God's plan, and we misunderstand the omniscience of God in this way that will take God's omniscience and say that it was God's plan or God's desire. Now, I'm going to be very clear. God knows everything. Let me say that again. God knows everything. But God does not require everything to be done the way that it is done. He does not remove free will. And we're about to read in in an account of the fact that God knows everything... But we are going to see a very negative event that God brings good out of, but it's still negative, and we can learn from this event. And and it's important that we understand that. So we come to Genesis 21, verse number 8. You've been seated a while. Why don't you stand with me in honor to the word of God and to stretch your legs just a bit, and uh, we will jump into this text. The Bible says, and the child... Grew. Now, you remember from two weeks ago that Abraham's son Isaac was born. After 25 years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah finally have their promised son. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham... "...cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac." And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, "...let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called." And also the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning. You just got to listen to this. He rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. Here's some bread, here's some water. Hit the road, Hagar. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, wandered, she had nowhere to go, she didn't know where to go, and the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs, and she went and sat um, sat her down over against him a good way off, and as it were, a bow shot, the shot of a bow and arrow, for she said, let me not see the death of the child, and she sat over against him, and lift up her voice, and wept, and God heard the voice of the lad. He must have been weeping as well. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? (laughs) Isn't it funny? This isn't in my message, so I just got to say that. And sometimes God asks questions that are really rather obvious. You've been kicked out of your house and you had a loaf of wonder bread and a bottle of water. The bottle of water's gone, you're in the desert. Hagar, what's your problem? Why are you sad? Like, uh, where do you want me to start, God? I mean, you ever think like that? Like you're in your prayer time or your private worship and you feel the spirit of God asking you what you think is an obvious question? Like, why are you sad about this? Well, what's wrong with you, Hagar? Verse number 17, fear not. For God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand for I will make him a great nation. God opened her eyes and and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. Well, I think as we unfold this story together, you'll see some good Bible principles. I've titled the message tonight, Wisdom for Parents wisdom for parents father I pray that you would help us to be a group of folks who are wise with the greatest resource we could ever be given our children And Lord we see some great truths in this passage of scripture that can help us to be better parents more effective with our children helping to prepare our children for the path that you have set for them, not trying to simply force conformity to what we desire, but helping our children to walk with you for the entirety of their life. Bless our time together tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to parenting, it seems like everyone has an opinion. How many of you have ever noticed that? Like all you got to do is tell people you're pregnant and people who have raised puppies will start giving you insight into parenting. I wrote a story this week about a man in Oregon, police in Oregon were looking for a man that... They say he stole a car and he stole a car with a child in the back seat. The mother went into this grocery store. She left the car unlocked and the engine going. This guy was walking by, saw the car going and the engine going, or the car going and the door unlocked. He jumped in the car and he took off. As he takes off, he drives around the block and he knows, He turns around and he notices because this little kid's talking to him. And so he takes the car, he drives around the block, he waits for the mom to come out of the store, she's a little frantic, she, he, the guy drives up to the mom at the store, he gets the kid out of the car, and he begins scolding the mother. This is what police said, he actually lectured the mother for leaving the child in the car and threatened to call the police on her. You gotta love Oregon. The police spokesperson said, obviously, we're thankful that he brought the little one back. The thief ordered the mom to take the child, and she did, and then he stole her car. (laughs) To me, that was funny. He didn't leave the car. He just left the kid. So, Kristen, that's your state. Yeah, there you go. Welcome to Oregon. When it comes to bedtime and homework and managing meltdowns, a growing number of families aren't relying on peers or parents, which I think is probably stupid. I'm gonna say that whole phrase again and give you an opportunity to join Brother Bernie. When it comes to bedtime and homework and managing meltdowns, a growing number of parents aren't relying on peers or parents, which I think is foolish. They're turning to parenting coaches. For one-on-one instruction. No, no lie. The coaches are charging between 125 to $350 a session and they meet with parents in person or over the phone or over Skype and, and they set goals and they develop a plan to to reach the goals for the parents. Megan and Michael Flynn used used to dread bedtime, man. They hated bedtime. Every night, the couple spent two stressful hours putting their preschooler to bed. It was just one more book, one more drink of water, one more, you know, one more, one more, one more. But with the help of a parenting coach, they cut that in half. And they were very thankful that now it only takes them one hour to put their two-year-old to bed. I can cut that down quite a bit, but I'm going to charge... Instead of craving in, said one parenting coach, coach, instead of craving in to one book after another, develop a routine, which would be good for some of you to hear, nightly routines of cleaning up the room, taking a bath, This, this is your pastor's free parenting help, if you come to me later, I'm going to charge $375 an hour, but brushing their teeth, cleaning their rooms, and Megan Flynn, the mom, said, It's just nice to have somebody strategize this for us. We never thought of these things. You're having a human and you didn't like read a book about it? Whatever. The profession, say, uh, some specialists, was virtually non existent 20 years ago, and one of the latest entries in the 1.08 billion dollar personal coaching industry 1.08 billion it's almost 1.1 billion dollars or it's 1,800,000,000 in personal coaching and people tell me they don't have money to tithe by the way you know what church is it's a support group that teaches you how to live life in accordance with God's word it's just what it is I find this laughable though and I've got jokes at the end so just stick with me if I could ever get there this is part of a broader American trend to hire expert advisors to improve nearly every facet of your life. You can hire a sleep coach, <laughs> a financial coach, a life coach, a food coach, a child rearing coach, a car driving coach, a fitness coach. But the professions aren't regulated as a general rule, and it leaves, and this one, parenting certainly is, and it leaves some experts concerned about what will be offered and what is being said. Others wonder why my parents would shell out hundreds hundreds of dollars for suggestions they might easily get elsewhere one parenting coach talked about her role and she said this who is there for these parents parenting is the hardest job in the world but there's no training for it in advance well if you come to a good church there probably is it's the most important job that I have, being a husband and being a parent. I want to talk to somebody who has done a successful job at raising kids for the cause of Jesus Christ. I want to talk to somebody who's open and honest and will help me. I don't need, and, and listen, most of my peers are godly men who've been serving the Lord for decades. I don't just want to talk to my peers, I want to talk to somebody who's a little bit down the road from me. You are foolish. You are foolish if you think that you're going to raise your kids and you're going to be the only influence in your kid's life. I'll tell you what, my, my kids consider Bernie Lund to be one of their counselors. Most of the time they don't like his counsel, but I like the fact that they don't like his counsel. He's a great counselor. Leslie's a great counselor. They talk to other people around here. They're counselors. You are foolish, and you are setting yourself up for failure. And again, this isn't in the chapter or or the passage. I'm just trying to be a help. You're setting yourself up for failure if you're not going to godly spiritual leaders that will help you parent your children and help you with your marriage and help you with your life. That's one of the reasons you have a shepherd. That's one of the reasons you have shepherds around here. That's one of the reasons there are godly people around here that's to help you think, keep things in order. You say, well, who do you go to? Well, I, uh, last week I went to about a, a temptation issue. I went to Fergus Tunnell and I talked to him and then Bern and I talked about it. I don't remember what the day was, Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday of this last week because I need some accountability and some help and some encouragement in my life just like everybody else does. So, don't you think you could have kept that to yourself and succeeded? I'm telling you this I don't know, but I don't want to find out. Amen. Because by the time I find out that I failed, it's too late. The damage is irrevocable, the pain is there. So, seek counsel. Well, the introduction to our text in verses 1 to 7, Isaac, uh, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, is born after waiting 25 years, verses 1 to 7. Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90. Hagar, who we read about in verse number 9, Abraham's wife, and yes, she was his wife. According to Genesis chapter 6, verse number 3, he took her to be his wife, is likely somewhere around 40 years old, and Ishmael is somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 17 years old. By the time we come to verse number 8, Isaac is probably, again, the Bible doesn't say exactly, so we're going a little bit off customs, if you know what I mean. So if, if you want to say plus or minus a year or two, that's totally fine. I don't care. Uh, we're just trying to be general in terms. But uh, Isaac is probably, in verse number 8, somewhere around four years old. The custom of that day was that you would, uh, a child would be breastfed until they were about four years old, which seems Weird, until you talk to people from Cuba. My sister-in-law is from Cuba, and she talked about kids that were 12 and 13 years old in her junior high school that were still being breastfed. And I just think that's really creepy, but whatever. It's awesome. Go for what you know. Well, Isaac's about four years old, and he is weaned. And the day that he is weaned, as was the custom of the day, there was a great feast. There was a great celebration. That's what the phrase great feast means. Abraham made a great celebration and servants would have been called in, friends would have been called in, dignitaries of the area because of Abraham's position would have been called in. And they are celebrating the fact that Isaac has made it to the age of weaning. Now you say, well, why is that such a big deal? Well, you've got to remember some historians say in that culture, the infant mortality rate would have been. 50 plus percent and so again we we don't know exactly but by some of the stuff we've read and studied it seems as though that that that's a very likely number so if a baby makes it to being four years old man that is a tremendous victory for the family and so it's a huge celebration that this child has made it to four years old well verse number nine at this celebration Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Mocking. Now, mocking means to laugh at. It can mean to make jokes. Here, it's probably making light of something that is very serious. In other words, Ishmael was a teenager and he was at a party for a four year old being weaned who had been born to a 90 year old. And there's just something about that that kind of made him laugh a little bit. And you say, Well, how do you feel about it? <laughs> Call me Ishmael. <laughs> I just think the same thing. Like, dude, there are so many jokes that could be said about this. Like, are you surprised that a teenager thinks this is funny? I mean, whatever. I'll stop right there. I'll save them for myself and Debbie to make fun of me later. But when Sarah saw that he was mocking her or Isaac, we don't know. But when he saw Ishmael mocking, she was enraged. She was enraged. And the first principle that we see here is we see the heart of a selfish, or yeah, the heart of a selfish parent. The heart of a selfish parent. She sees him mocking in verse number nine. And notice what she does in verse number 10. She said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Selfishness. Selfishness is a very real part of our life. It's a part of our condemned nature. I've been around, like you, selfishness all my life, but it was, I don't know if beautiful is the right word, but it was illustrated to me nonetheless about a year ago when I bought a hummingbird feeder. I like hummingbirds. I think they're cool to look at. Debbie bought me binoculars to look at hummingbirds and... We have a lot of birds in our neighborhood because we're right next to Tecolote Canyon. And, and so I bought this hummingbird feeder and I put this hummingbird feeder up and, and I learned how to make my own mixture because their stuff was way too expensive. So I put it up and we have this one hummingbird that comes to our feeder and um, she's quite... Every, you say, how do you know? She, 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 we were having a conversation. And... Um, but seriously, she looks like a, a female hummingbird, and she's very, very territorial. And any hummingbird that comes, she causes a fight with them, and they go, away, they fight. It's really kind of, a, I mean, when a hummingbird fights, it's pretty cool. I mean, it really is. If you've never seen it, I mean, they don't ever hit each other. It's like... It's like, you know, watching two basketball players fight. They couldn't hit one another to save their life, but it's still fun to watch, you know, and they they just miss each other the whole time, and, and but it's really this interesting interplay. So here's what will often happen. One hummingbird will come and, and, and try to eat, and then the territorial one will come and chase it away, and while they're fighting, other hummingbirds will come and eat, and then she'll come back and chase them away. So I, I got the bright idea a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to get two hummingbird feeders, And I set them about 25 feet apart, and I thought, well, she can't watch both. But let me tell you, that little hummingbird sure tries to. She is inherently selfish. That's who Sarah is. She's inherently selfish. She's selfish in her parenting, she's a helicopter parent, and a selfish parent is one who is more concerned about their well being than the well being of their child. A selfish parent is more concerned about how they feel than, how they're, than whether or not their children grow and develop for Christ. They're more concerned about how they're perceived than the direction their children will go or the direction of the, or rather the obedience of their children to the word of God. It's interesting to me that Sarah just cast out this bondwoman and her son. If, if you remember the story back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham goes into Egypt because of his faithlessness. And there we believe that he takes Hagar, who is a slave girl. And in Genesis chapter 16, Sarai, Sarah, says to Abraham, I can't have a child, so I want you to take Hagar. I want you to marry her. And I want you to have a child with her and I can obtain a child by her. Because the custom of the day was if if Hagar had a child, then that child would actually be Sarah's child. And Sarah was to love and nurture that child. And they stepped out of God's will and they did that. And that child culturally, ethically, morally was supposed to be cared for by Sarah. But Sarah, as soon as she had Isaac, and really before it seems, as we study the entirety of the passage, that Sarah wanted nothing to do with with Ishmael, even though she told Isaac, Abraham to marry the slave girl and to have a child with her. And she was a selfish parent. We have to ask some questions. Why was she a selfish parent? I think from this text it's pretty clear to see that she was insecure. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son even with Isaac. Shall not be heir with my son even with Isaac she was insecure I don't want Isaac sharing his status I don't want Isaac sharing his position I don't want Isaac sharing his birthright with the son of a slave girl of a bondwoman. now it doesn't seem like she cared that much before she had her own son But as soon as she had her own son, she's ready to cast him out. Can I let you in on some insight, parents? You're going to need security as a parent more than at any other time in your life. If you think that you're secure in your walk with God and your faith and your love for your spouse, have a child. And you will find out very quickly how insecure you really are. We find our security. Some parents find their security in their children. They, they are easily frustrated, angered, irritated if their child embarrasses them or if someone else's child embarrasses them, as is the case here. Or if, or if somebody embarrasses the child, the parents will lash out out of their insecurity. And she's brash or rash here. There's no conversation. There's no kindness shown to a teenager. There's no there's no talking. There's no dialogue. She simply sees him mocking her, and I'm not condoning the mocking. I'm just saying it's a natural part of life uh, at times for silly teenagers to do. And it certainly did not. I mean, the 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 judgment of kick them out of the house was extremely harsh. Word cast out in verse number ten literally means to force them out or to force them to go away. And she said this, He will not be heir with my son. A selfish parent is harsh harshness, now when we say that, sometimes we think back to like my German mom or other parents who are like, oh, that's what harsh was. I give my kids whatever they want. Let me tell you, I've seen some of the most passive, pansy, putrefyingly weak parents that come to the end of their rope and they suddenly become, because they do not have boundaries, they suddenly become some of the, the harshest people I have ever seen. They put up with and put up with and put up with and put up with. And then, when they've done, they can do no more because they didn't deal with it early, which is exactly what we see here. They are done. Don't you say another word? I can't stand you. Shut up and get to your room. I don't want to see you the rest of the night. That's a harsh statement it's harshness. Well, we not only see the heart of a selfish parent, we see the actions of a weak father, verse number 11. Now, again, we have to be clear. We understand that God is going to use this for good. But I would submit to you this is not ultimately God's plan because it brings injury unnecessarily on part of God's creation. Verse number 10, and the thing was, listen to this phrase, very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. The phrase, the word grievous means to do wrong, to break something, to be very bad. And so Abraham hears this from Sarah, and he he understands this is very bad. He doesn't like this at all. This is very bad. He's, He's very much against what is going on, but he did nothing about it. Now that the interplay between Abraham and God in verse number 12 seems to be a, a period of time between the two, but I, I, and we'll see that in a minute, but I, I do wanna say very, very quickly, in, in, or very clearly, I should say, that Abraham was a weak father who did not picture the loving grace and strength of, the, of God the Father, but rather was weak and allowed, listen, allowed his wife to dictate the actions, of the family Abraham bought into the lie of Satan that the one responsible for rearing the children is the mother I said the lie of Satan well what do you mean well turn to Ephesians chapter 5 Don't lose your spot in Genesis. Now, Brother Herring helped us to understand this. God calls us to do what is hardest for us. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. It's harder for the average woman to submit than it is for the average man. Matter of fact, all the way back to the fall, that's what what Scripture says, that part of the condemnation or the judgment on Eve's, Eve's life is that all women will have a desire towards their husband. That does not mean in any way, shape, or form that they just desire to be with him and go on dates on Friday. Doesn't mean that means they want his position. They want his authority. And so God calls you, ladies, to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. He does not call you to submit to somebody else's husband. He doesn't call you to submit to some other dude. He calls you to submit to your own husbands. How? As unto the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife. The average man would rather somebody tell them what to do. Sometimes I go home and Debbie's like, hey, what do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to go out to eat? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. Where do you want to go? No, I have no idea. Do you want to go work out? I don't know. Do you want to go to sleep? I don't know. Well, what do you know? I want you to tell me what we're going to do. And she'll say, well, you're the head of me. I'm to submit to you. And I'm like, then make the decision, woman, and do it now. (laughs) I'm just joking around. But, I mean, we'll, we'll do that. Because sometimes when I get home, especially some of you men know this, you've made decision after decision after decision all day, and all you want to do when you get home is somebody to say, hey, sit down, we're having burritos for dinner and we're watching Barnaby Jones reruns for the rest of the night, and we've duct taped the children underneath the bed so everything will be fine. I'm kidding, we didn't duct tape any of our daughters under the bed, we did it on top of the bed, it's way easier to get them off of there. The husband is the head of the wife. God called us to do the harder thing for us. This would be easy for a wife. If God said, wives, lead your husband and men do what they say, most of us would be like, right on. Seems to fit her character anyway. She'd be happy, I'd be happy. But God calls us by way of submission to his word to do what he said. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband's. As unto the Lord, husband, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself. Men, this I were to think of our wives, that were presented to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives that you need to love your wife the same way Christ loves the church that when she stands before the Lord listen to me when she stands before the Lord she stands clean pure and holy you are to pastor your wife let me say that again you are called to pastor your wife So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. You said, well, what does that mean, Pastor? Just give her everything she wants? Absolutely not. It means to do what she needs to do. I can't give as a shepherd of Canyon Ridge Baptist Church everything that people want. I'm required to give what people need. Verse number 20. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave. Here's an important word, young men. Leave. Leave. Not church. Leave your parents. Well, my parents live in some other part of the country or the world or the state or whatever. Great. That is awesome. But God has called you not to be tied to their strings. Leave father and mother and be joined into the, your wife, and you two shall be one flesh. What does he mean? He means listen to me, young men, man up. Stop letting your parents dictate exactly what's going on in your marriage. You be the man. And by the way, don't let your in-laws dictate it either. Well, it's my daughter. I never imagined my daughter would have to live in these conditions. Well, you were the loser that let me do it, so shut your mouth. <laughs> say, would, you, would you elaborate on that? Yeah, look your in-laws in the eyes and say, shut up. I'm doing the best I can, and young men, do the best you can. And get a good-paying job. Oh uh, we'll, Okay, we'll stay here. You should have jumped on. For crying out loud, this is the greatest employee market in the history of my adult life or my teen years or my childhood years. It's the greatest market in my brother-in-law's life and he's 114. His first job, this is not a lie. His first job was helping build the Brooklyn Bridge, which was finished in 1889. It's his first job. This is the best market you've ever seen in your life. Well, I just can't get a job. Dude, get out there. You could probably double whatever you're making right now just by walking into any business going, hey, I'll work if you'll pay me this many dollars an hour. Will you show up? Yeah. Okay, we'll interview tomorrow. You have no idea how hard it is for us to even hire people right now. I can't even get Bernie and Zane to work. <sighs> That's why I was so thankful for Robbie shooting the video off early. At least I knew it got done. Zane was back there napping, reading Sports Illustrated. So This is the greatest market in history. Get a good-paying job. I don't feel bad about encouraging you to get a good paying job. I don't want the government, well, I can make more money off the government. Shut your mouth. Don't ever put it on somebody else to take care of you when God has given you the ability and the mind to make money. Get a job and make money. Why? Because that's what God has called you to do. You say, you sound like a capitalist. I am. Because Jesus is. He gave you 10 talents, 5 talents, and 2 talents, or 1 talent. And he's coming back to see what you have done with them. Do the best you can with what he has given you. Get a job. Get a wife. Leave your father and mother. Don't live in their basement. Dude, you are not ready to get married if you say, Hey, sweetheart, mom and dad have an extra room. We could live there. Girls, if a dude says that to you, punch him in the face and never talk to that loser again. You've never clapped in unison before, but thank you. (sighs) Seriously. Well, we're just going to have our parents help us to raise the children. Your parents aren't called to raise the children. I don't want to raise my grandchildren. When my daughters have babies, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Those little crumb snatchers are going to come to my house. I'm going to spoil the garbage out of them. I'm just going to, I'm going to put in their bottles sugar water with whatever they're drinking. Those other kids drinking Kool-Aid, they're going to be little hummingbirds. It's going to be a, Those kids are going to go home jacked up with diabetes, and they're only been at grandpa's house for about 30 minutes. And they're, Judith and Natalie are going to call, What did you do to my children? Everything you wished your grandparents would have done. They will have nothing but cinnamon rolls and ice cream. I will feed them meat, but it will be really a donut in the shape of chicken breast. That's it, man. Those kids are going to be spoiled. I don't want to raise my kids, grandkids. I want to spoil my grandkids. I want to spoil the mess. I just my grandkids and when they start acting up, I'm calling mom and dad because those babies ain't spending the night. <laughs> why? Because you can't feed them like that and expect them to spend the night. They'll never sleep. I'm going to give them so much cheese they'll be constipated for a month. I'm sending them home with a bag of Metamucil at six months old. Baby, just prepare. <sighs> That's why you leave father and mother. You say, man, I never bring my kids over. You see my point? Leave father and mother, be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. The one flesh part, which is the sex part, the one flesh part happens after the leaving part. It didn't happen before. Our world's got it all messed up. Hey, let's play house. No, God says be the house before you play the house. And then he says, children, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Abraham, You need to understand something, brother. That your first responsibility is to take care of your wife. And since you married two, you got to take care of both of them. And it's not like Abraham didn't have other kids. Turn over to Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 24, Sarah dies. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. We're almost getting to the end of this study. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Beautiful story here, and she bare him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua and. Jokshan begat Sheba, and Dadan, and the sons of Dadan. And you read this, this lineage all the way down through verse number 4. The, all these were the children of Keturah. And notice what Abraham does. He, verse number 5. He gives all that he had unto Isaac because Isaac was, was the promised child. We're almost done here. But unto the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived, eastward, like to the region of Jordan today, and and further into Iraq and other countries, uh, probably other countries, we're just making some assumption here, eastward unto the east country. So the other concubines, Abraham provides for their sons and sends them away. He was so weak... that all he gave Ishmael and Hagar was some bread and a bottle of water that he put on her shoulder. Well, maybe, Pastor, that's all he had. No. Remember, this is why context matters, he's one of the wealthiest men in the world, if not the wealthiest man in the world. He had probably several hundred, if not thousands of camels, tens of thousands of sheep, probably a thousand roughly, by this point, roughly a thousand servants. He could have sent them away with gifts to prepare and to care for them, but he didn't do anything, gave them some water and some bread. A selfish parent, and a weak parent will always produce a suffering child. A selfish parent and a weak parent will always produce a suffering child. Hagar, get out. I mean, he cast her out and I'm gonna give you some bread and a bottle of water. I watched today as some parents treated their kids, nobody that's part of our church, but matter of fact, I saw a tremendous amount of grace towards two children in our church today, but their parents rejected them today because the parents are weak and selfish weak and selfish and so Hagar in verse number 14 leaves and wanders in the wilderness of Beersheba and the water is spent in the bottle and she tells Ishmael, you sit under the shrub. She casts him under the shrub. She, you stay there and she goes on. And they just begin to pray. And literally what they're thinking is we're going to die. We have no water. We have no food. We can't survive. Think of the emotional to- toil on that boy and really on that young woman. Brought on them, if we could say it this way, from, at least from the canon of Scripture, what we see in the book of Genesis, no fault of their own. She was sold as a slave or was born a slave in Egypt. Pharaoh gives her to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah says, You will marry her. He marries her, has a child with her at the directive of Sarah, and now she's kicked out. I mean, her life is upside down and has been upside down forever. And now we have a suffering child. I thought of this just by way of application. Our world is filled with suffering children. I could talk about a lot of things, but... I think sometimes our children are suffering in large part because we have selfish parents who parent with screen time. Give the kids some technology to keep them quiet. Let them have a phone so they'll stop pestering you. The ones who suffer are the children. But we give them what they want. Yes, and that's why they're suffering. And they're suffering greatly. Growing up, we used to hear messages about putting TVs in kids' rooms and how wrong that was, and rightly so. Now we give them the devilish power of the Internet at their disposal, and we expect young men and women to be able to rightly use the most powerful tool in the information age at a very young age. And the children are the ones who suffer. Why? Why do we do that? Because we're selfish and weak. Pastor, I am overwhelmed. Might be that one of the reasons you're overwhelmed is you have too many things going on in your life. When God granted you children, he expected you to give up some of your hobbies. Men, did you hear me? He expected you to sell some of your video games. He expected you not to stay up late playing board games with the boys, hanging down at the club, just doing your thing. No, no, he expected you to sacrifice for your children. Well, come on, Pastor, we go to church, we go to outreach, we have trail life. You know what happens when you have kids? Basically, this is what you do. You worship and serve God, you go to work, you raise your kids. Well, when do I get me time? When they move out of the house. Maybe, but not really even then, because my experience has been they're over more and ask for more after they move out than when they actually live there. Sometimes I have a daughter who lives with Miriam. I'm not going to say her name, but it's Judith. <laughs> and I'll look at Miriam. I'm like, when does she come to your house? Because she pays you rent but eats my food. This doesn't work well. Shouldn't she stay at your house all the time? And Miriam's like, I don't know, Pastor, but it's quiet. <laughs> what? Have, what you, I mean, they're over all the time. Here's the deal. You got the thrill. You pay the bill. But you pay the bill for life. When's it going to end? Never. You know who I call when I want to feel good? Gerald or Arlene? Why? Well, because my sister's no help. (laughs) My brother doesn't answer his calls, my calls. So the only prayer, I'll call my parents and my mom will answer. Hey, Chris, what's wrong? I need somebody to tell me I'm amazing today. Well, did you try Debbie? Yeah, that didn't go well. She submitted to me, but she didn't mean it. Mom, tell me I'm amazing. Okay, you're amazing. Do you mean it? Well, son, just think whatever you want. Okay, you meant it. (laughs) Selfish and weak parents hurt children. We have little children in our church who, who, who walk around begging for screen time. Because that's what they know keeps them quiet and they're addicted at a young age. I I started to bring in a bunch of statistics, but I've been dealing with statistics all week, so I just didn't feel compelled to do it. I'm I'm just going to tell you very candidly that, and this is a new problem, and every psychologist that studies, it says we need a long-term study. But all of the early indicators of this is you're literally ruining your children's cognitive reasoning abilities where they can't process things correctly because everything is processed for them. And we sit in a car and we're like, it keeps them quiet if we just turn on a video. You know how my parents kept us quiet in the car? Boy, if you shut up, I'm going to pull this car over and I'm going to take care of business and then you have to walk to Texas. Well, what did he do it? He pulled the car over a few times. That's why Gloria short, kept hitting her on the head. No, don't do that oh, my pastor said hit the kids on the head." don't I'm just trying to illustrate in a humorous way that you don't have to give in to your kids especially if you'll correct them early and often under control without yelling at them without screaming at them no, I mean, if we go back to verse number 9 and verse number 10, it seems like Sarah, I don't know how loud a 90-year-old woman can be, but it seems, I mean, she's old enough to have a baby, so she's probably loud. She's 94 by this point. She's, I mean, she's, she's, she's very voluminous in her verbiage. Okay, she's yelling. That's what she's doing. Okay. No. Men, be strong. Women, ladies, serve your families. Pastor your children. Because the last thing we want is suffering children. I deal with young people who've walked away from the Lord on a regular basis. Second, third, fourth generation kids who've just walked away. And one of the things that I ask them is why. And I talk to them. And this is a constant conversation that I have with kids. By constant, I mean monthly. It's not uncommon for me to have it. And one of the reasons I always ask them is why would you want to walk away? And it it invariably comes back to parenting. My parents were absent, my parents were over aggressive, my parents were dictators, they never explained anything, whatever the case may be. No, don't be a selfish parent and don't be a weak parent. Be a strong, grace filled parent. And this story would not be complete, or this message would not be complete without addressing verses seventeen to 21, and God heard the voice of the lad and the angel of God called Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what aileth thee? And hey, Hagar, fear not, for the Lord hath heard the vo- thy voice and the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand. And verse number 19, and God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. You say, well, well why didn't she see that before? <laughs> because God just created it. In her time of need, God created something that was not previously there. In this passage, we have to understand the big idea. And we see in verse 17 to 21, the grace of our loving God. This passage about parenting failure and relationship failure is overshadowed by the grace of our loving God. And God was with the lad, the outcast, the unwanted one, the rejected one, the one kicked out of the house with a loaf of bread and a bottle of water. And God was with him. And he, the lad, grew, verse number 20, and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. And we could go on and and read and study. We won't for the sake of time because we know it. But he became a, Ishmael had a great nation. And still today, the Ishmaelites or the, the Arabian people are still the descendants of Ishmael. Why? Because he was all the way back. God talks to Abraham in verse number 12. Because he is thy son, 12 and 13. I will make a nation of him because he is thy seed. So I don't know where you're from and I don't know the hurts of your past and I don't know the parenting of your life, what it's been like. But can I tell you that regardless of what you went through, whether you had a selfish parent, a weak parent, a combination of both or both of the same kind and you suffered as a child, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God is a God of grace and showing you grace and wants to give you grace and give your children grace and help you and encourage you and you can sit and complain and cry about where you're at or where you're from, it won't change where you're from, but if you'll understand the grace of God, it will change where you're going. It will change where you're going. I look around this room, and I know many of the stories here and the struggles and the abuse and, and the things that many of you went through and, and the suffering that you had in my life and, and is not free of of those struggles and those challenges. but can I tell you with grave or with great sincerity that the grace of God wants to take you where you could never take yourself don 't run from his grace, run to his grace, plead with him to make you the parent that He wants you to be to give you the strength and the boundaries and the consistency and the love for your children that he wants you to have and that you would parent in a Christ-like way and that you would love studying uh, uh, parenting and being a better parent and helping to raise the next generation the Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse number 7 principle of teaching your children when you walk by the way when you lie down when you rise up everywhere you go talking to your children about the things of God helping your children to understand that God has a plan for their life and it's the best plan ever it's a grace-filled plan it's a joyful plan. God is not an unkind, ogreish God, but he's a grace-filled, loving God, and he wants to do tremendous things in your life. And we do not go through this very, very challenging story in Genesis chapter 21 without seeing the loving grace of our God who wants to minister to you as a loving, heavenly father. And so don't be a selfish parent. Don't be a weak parent. But be a grace-filled, loving parent just like God. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.